to those of you who are brave enough to be here, welcome into the Royal. Hello and welcome to the very first podcast of Into the Royal. My name is Zach Mullinex. And my name is Warren Mullinex. And we'll be your hosts for this podcast. And for hopefully many others. So I guess to get go ahead and get it out of the way is what this whole podcast is about and why you're listening to it. And what we're trying to accomplish. Uh, this podcast was we created for the sole sake of taking the more difficult aspects of magic, such as the metagame and deck brewing and all the theory that's involved there that not everyone always wants to work with and breaking it down and analyzing it and putting out the information that you really want as the player to play in the next major tournament or at your local FNM or wherever you decide to play. Mainly to second what he is saying, to also include preparation. Preparation is such an important part of competitive magic, and a lot of people do it improperly. There are steps that you can undertake that will better prepare you for any event that you may be competing in, and hopefully the knowledge that we have and information that we have will benefit you in the future. So this being the first episode, we hope to do this frequently, uh, once a week, would be our goal and that's four episodes a month and with as the rise in popularity of Magic the Gathering once a week still may not be enough because the metagame changes so quickly. Now what I'll do is I'll turn it over to Zach to explain what a metagame is and we can discuss what to do in metagaming and preparing for whatever metagame that you may have. Alright, so in case you do not know, a metagame is simply what you're expecting to play against. The game within the game. Um, Trying to keep this as simplistic as possible, basically what you're trying to do if you're trying to metagame is to predict what your opponents are going to play before you even walk into the room. And the importance of knowing what the metagame is can determine everything from what deck you're playing to specifically which cards within that deck are you playing. You have to remember that if you're playing, you know, in a serious and competitive environment, even something that, you know, it could be just be your local FNM, you have 75 cards that you are saying, I'm willing to place money behind this and say that I will win with it. And if you walk in there with goblins into a bunch of you know core firewalkers, then you're probably not going to come out on top. But if you walk in there, you know, with the exact correct deck that manages to beat out your opponent, then your odds of winning are that much better. Now, that's not to say that you're going to walk in with the deck that just absolutely comes in and takes down every deck. That's impossible. I don't know of anyone who's ever done that. But it can't happen. There's there's too much variance to the game that we play. What you can do is through proper metagaming is to try to gain every advantage possible. And there's more than just having a deck of 75 cards. If there was simply a deck that consisted of those cards that just won because you played it, everyone would be playing it. So due to variance and other things, you have to prepare properly and predict properly to give you 
an advantage in whatever area that you might be playing, whether it be an FNM or a Grand Prix or a Pro Tour or a PTQ. A lot of your information will come through observation and experience. It doesn't take long to to play in an FNM and discover pretty quickly what the local players are playing and what's popular. So understanding and observing what other Magic players are playing, where you'll be playing, is a step in the right direction to prepare properly to gain an advantage and to hopefully win. So to give you a specific example, if any of you have been keeping up, we just had the opening day of Pro Tour Paris, and we are just now getting into Grand Prix Paris. This is, of course, for those of you who don't know, this is being taking place on a Sunday. It's uh, a magic weekend. There's a Pro Tour and a Grand Prix all occurring at the same time at the same place. This is So, as I was saying, this is occurring on Sunday, uh, the 13th of February. So we don't know exactly what's happening with the Pro Tour yet the top eight and everything, but we do know that there are three cargo decks or blue-white control decks. We have one rogue uh, Tezzeret Agent of Bullets deck. We have two Boros aggro decks, one green-white aggro deck, and one blue-white aggro deck. Now, in my opinion, that's a pretty balanced metagame right now, which is saying that you have you know half of your metagame's control and half of your metagame's aggro. With one combo deck. Uh, if you I, consider... I look at the green-white Holy Relic deck as a combo deck. But one important thing to take out of that is the fact that there are three cargo decks in your top eight. Now, it's been a while since I've seen such a dominated control standard tournament, and at least from blue-white. And something to take away from that is that you can probably expect that your local next big tournament where people are keeping track of what's being played and what's popular, what's working, that you're probably going to see some cargo decks. If at least, you know, about probably about 30%. And if you're not familiar with what cargo is, it's a blue-white control deck that runs Squadron Hawks. That's the original cargo deck that was actually developed in Japan. And the Japanese player was working with Brad Nelson, who then shared it with Brian Kibler, and Brian Kibler took it to great heights. I think it was um, at Worlds, right? He went 6-0 six, six at Worlds? Yes, Brian Kibler went 6-0 at Worlds. Brad, no, Brad Nelson went 3-3 three and three due to some misplays and bad game choice, you know, bad matchups. But the deck has been around since Worlds. You could say the blue-black control-dominated Worlds. But hasn't really been popular or super dominant until about the past month or two when Brian Kibler took it to a top four within, was it San Jose? Star City, Kansas City. Kansas City? Okay. So Brian Kibler takes it to a top four and it's really popular again. Uh, it It doesn't show up for about another month, and all of a sudden we get Pro Tour Paris and Grand Prix Paris, and all of these cargo decks are showing up. And in fact, Player of the Year Brad Nelson beat out Guillaume Matignon with a cargo deck. So we, I can expect it to be very popular coming up soon. So for any of you, for instance, who are going to be playing in the Star City Open DC, like 
you know, Warren and I are, we will be, I personally will be playing Kalgo myself, and I easily expect that to be a very, very, very popular deck there. And now what you would do, we, we've been talking about metagame. So if you're going to be playing white-blue control and specifically Kalgo, rather than concentrating a lot of your focus and energy in the initial stages of preparation, concentrating that on beating goblins or boros or other aggro decks, the first thing that you're going to want to do to properly metagame is develop your deck to beat the mirror. Kalgo is going to be played heavily. So if you can't beat the mirror, which is going to represent a good portion of the field, you have a very good difficult time being successful with your deck. So the most important thing that you're going to want to do playing Kalgo is to learn how or to discover how to beat the mirror. Um, speaking of Kalgo specifically, uh, I'd like to take a little bit of time just to discuss that deck by itself. At first glance, the deck really just doesn't look like it does much of anything. It has a few you know, big cards, and I'm going to take specifically Brad Nelson's deck list here. There is another deck list that I prefer that runs Sun Titans, but the original Colgo just ran Squadron Hawks, and recently in this Pro Tour Paris, they decided to run four Stone Forge Mystics. Personally, I feel it's a great option, and as Warren will begrudgingly tell you, was suggested in September but not listened to by me. The original Colgo list ran four Squadron Hawks. No Stoneforge Mystics, no Sword of Feast and Famine, no Equipment, no Sun Titan, just Squadron Hawk. And it, and it did well. But when I originally saw the Colgo list, I, I felt it was missing some components in that, yeah, it could beat down with the Squadron Hawks, but it could be mu a much more aggressive deck with modification by including Stoneforge Mystic and the Equipment Package. I originally um, had tweeted that information out that Stoneforge Mystic would be a great addition to the deck. I was told that adding Stoneforge Mystic to Colgo doesn't do what the deck is originally designed to do. Um, with three entries in the top eight of Pro Tour Paris, I think we can officially say that the Stoneforge package is indeed what the deck wanted. Now, one of the um, really big debates with Colgo is actually not the win condition or anything else. It's the counter spells that they run. Um, a lot of Colgo builds run roughly nine counter spells, and the big issue that they have is how many copies to run of Mana Leak and how many copies to run of Spell Pierce. Now, if you ask, at least in more my opinion, I don't mind four spell pierce, but I personally think it's too much. And that three and three, three spell pierce, three mana leak, is the much better option versus the four and two that's being run with the current Colgo build. It's four spell pierce, two mana leak. Yes. In the current build. And I, I personally am running three and three and one deprive, and I'm choosing to run a few other different things, but that's another topic altogether. Oh, we can, we can actually stay there, I think. Since Colgo is such an, a big part of the current meta, the counterspell variants that are being run, I think it's an important issue. I personally like to pry a lot, especially to get spreading seas off of a, of a land 
that you have. Granted, it's only a one of. But I think having three spell pierce and three mana leak in the main with one spell pierce and one mana leak in the sideboard gives you a better, it gives you greater diversity and flexibility in, a, in approaching other decks. Uh, and it's great for the mirror. I know this, this podcast is called Into the Royal. Uh, that is a card. It's just coincidental. But it's a card that I think Colgo should try to be packing in the sideboard for the mirror match. Because, you know, running oust is great, but it doesn't do a whole lot for Gideon. And being able to into the Royal Gideon back to your opponent's hand or into the Royal a Squadron Hawks, if they have a sort of Feast and Famine, is incredibly important because the engine that Colgo wants to run is to untap their lands at the end of the attack phase. And a great way of preventing that is into the Royal and then hard counter with Deprive if it's being run. But into the Royal and a Gideon is a really important piece in winning the mirror match. I have within my hands, obviously you can't see, but I have in my hands four cards that I'm running that I personally feel are very important cards for this deck, though they are not currently being run. The first and foremost is one that is being run right now in certain of them, and it is Sun Titan. If you don't know the card, it's the one of the Titans from the M11 set. It's the white one. It's four white-white. 6-6 six, six, with Vigilance, and when it enters the battlefield or attacks, you can return a card, any or a permanent card, which in, with CMC, converted mana cost, three or less from your graveyard to the battlefield. Now, immediately most people are thinking, you're probably thinking the same lines I am, return a destroyed sword or squadron hawks that got killed, but the crucial part of the card is not actually getting a creature back, but it's getting your lands back. Tectonic Edge is a card that you basically play like a spell, but it is a land, which means it has no converted mana cost, but it is still a permanent, meaning that you can bring it back with a Sun Titan. And that's a card you know you're going to lose over the course of a match. But, when you know that you get it back after you play a card, you have really no fear of getting rid of your opponent's man lands or their own tectonic edges. They can't get it back, but you have now a recurring engine of just tectonic edges coming out, of land destruction. Yeah, and keeping them on on four lands, which prevents them from you know activating their colonnades. And you know, control always needs mana to, uh, and a lot of it, no matter what the the control colors are, whether it's blue black or historically white blue. I, one of one of the things that I feel that I'm good at is not necessarily deck building, but deck tweaking and deck modifying and looking at how things are being run and trying to improve upon them. One of the things that I find that would help Colgo in the mirror is, first of all, to run one forest main deck uh, that they can fetch with Misty. And that lone forest is used for Wall of Tangle Cord. And if you bring in, first, if you have, let's say, 3x Wall of Tangle Cord in the sideboard, it's going to help you in any aggro matchup, uh, whether it's, it's a two-drop that comes out quickly. You don't need any colors to play it. So if you hit a tectonic edge in, a, in an island or a tectonic edge in you know, tectonic an edge. edge of your dual lands, you can quickly get it out on turn two, prevent 
goblin guides or, or any other cards from or aggro creatures from getting damaged. Now, some people might say, well, why don't you just run Wall of Omens? Well, the thing is, if you have one forest in the main deck, in your mana base, it's not going to deter you from being blue-white. It's still what you are. I won't even consider it being a three-color deck. The Lone Forest <clears throat> is there to activate Wall of Tango Cord to prevent Squadron Hawks from getting through. You can just simply tap that green land, prevent Squadron Hawks from doing any damage at all. It's an 06 creature. Um, I think it's great cyborg tech for the mirror match. That not only helps you in the mirror, but it also helps you against aggro. I don't think it's what you want to run in the main deck, but it's definitely sideboard tech for the mirror match. I'm not sure how Zach feels about that. That's just my thoughts. Pers I love Wall of Tangle Cord by itself. I know it's seeing a lot of extended play, but personally, I just don't feel that with the current meta, there's just enough spots in it right now for Wall of Tangle Cord to be in the sideboard. Um, the next card in my hand here is Everflowing Chalice. Now, that's a card that a lot of you have been heard, have probably heard about before, back from the original blue-white control deck, back during Shards of Alara. It was used very heavily with Marshall Koo to give that extra, you know, one or two soldier tokens out. Um, right now I feel the card is just too vital for both the aggro and the mirror match. Against aggro, it lets you get off the turn three Day of Judgment, the turn four Gideon. You know, um, my favorite play personally is to play it on turn three uh, with one and then with one mana open, and that way you have counterspell or play, maybe play a Wall of Omens or a Squadron Hawks behind it. Your choice. But the later the game gets, the better the card gets. The more mana you can soak up into it, and there's nothing better than being able to play a Jace and a Gideon on the same turn. Mm. And being able to protect it under against goblins or anything. Or to attack with the colonnade and play Jace on the same turn. Exactly. With Sword of Feast and Famine, it doesn't untap Everflowing Chalice, but if you can play around that, it's really easy. Right now I just feel the card is really good when it's the first to turn the, to five mana, basically. Especially in the control mirror, it boils down to who gets out the Gideon first, who gets out the Sword of Feast and Famine first. The person who keeps their cards longer on the board, and then the person who keeps their planeswalkers longer on the board and faster is going to be the one who ends up winning the match. Just like with blue black control, the person who sticks the jace is the one who wins it. Yeah, absolutely. And Everflowing Chalice allows you to win the tempo game against control. Again, we're speaking strictly of playing the mirror match. And if you're going to metagame, as far as preparing for the game within the game, if you're playing blue-white control, especially Colgo, if you can out-tempo them, which is what sort of Feast and Famine does against an unprepared opponent, you're a step ahead. If you can land the turn three Mind Sculptor or the turn four Gideon or Elspeth, and there's just so much that you can do. And it also allows you to cut a land. Um, there's a lot of blue-white control decks that are running 26 lands. Uh, you're actually, with Everflowing Chalice, able to cut a land and not hurt your mana base. And late game Everflowing Chalices really help diversify the deck. There are some X spells that are out there, like White Sun Zenith. Have we talked about that? That's the next card in my hand. It's an overlooked card. Um, when I first saw it, I was like, 
it's kind of gimmicky. Maybe it's oriented towards the Johnny player, but having Which, tested it against Zach, that card, especially with Everflowing Chalice, is is insane. It's a really good card, and it's another card that will help in the mirror match. For those of you who don't know, that uh, Johnny is considered a psychological profile for magic players, and a Johnny is someone who likes to play the really cool cards, the cards that do really interesting things. So I agree. When I first saw the card, you know, you compare this to Green Sun Zenith, Black Sun Zenith, even Red Sun Zenith at the time, and I was going, how does this thing even compare? It's nowhere remotely good. But for those of you who don't know, the card says X white, white, white. So it automatically costs three mana. It is an instant, and that's probably the most crucial part about the card. It's an instant that says put X two two cat tokens into play. Shuffle White Sun Zenith onto your library. Now, I've used it many times, and Warren can attest to it. At the end of my opponent's turn, or during what after they declare their attackers, thinking I have only one blocker or something, and I'll pop this out for you know four or five. Outcomes. Well, let's say, let's say in this specific example, four cat tokens. That's eight points of power and toughness that just came out on the board. That would be a total, though, of seven mana. Easily hittable, easily doable, possible by turn five or six with an ever-flowing chalice. Yes. Now, in a very realistic scenario, and I say realistic because it's happened against Zach, if you unload White Sun Zenith on your opponent's end step. On the very next turn, more than likely, you'll be tacking with four cat tokens, a Gideon Jura, and a Colony. That is an insane amount of damage coming through on your opponents. It's a bit almost lethal, is it not? It's eight, um, see, it's eight from the cat. They'd be down to two 14, life. It'd be eight, yeah, it'd be 18 damage. They'd be down to two life. More than likely, that would be enough to kill, especially with Fetchland still being part of the game. Yep. Um, the thing I like the most about it, though, and another thing that's overlooked, not only is it a win condition, but it's a great defensive board advantage changer. Absolutely. If your opponent's running goblins, more than likely it's a bunch of 1-1s, mm -hmm. such as, you know, the goblin tokens, bushwhacker, or anything that's not been kicked. They swing with, the, like, 5 one ones because your board's clear. You drop a white sun zenith after the declare attacker step because there is an instant effect before the declare blocker step. Yep. You drop that out, out pops four or five cat tokens, you wipe their whole board, and you're left with perfect board position, having just destroyed theirs while keeping yours, all because they thought you didn't have anything. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and I'll tell you another thing that it does, too. Um, Zach runs one in the main. I would actually consider running one in the sideboard as well. Some tech that a lot of people are... Well, I don't want to say a lot of people, but quite a few people. And it's it's tech that I use if I'm running an ag aggro deck. I usually pack four in the sideboard of Jinxed Idol. Jinxed Idol generally does a lot of damage against control players because they just don't get enough creatures out to um, get the, get the idol back to their opponent. Jinx, an early jinxed idol against control, say, turn two, uh, will result in 10 damage, maybe 12 damage to the control player. Having a card like White Sun Zenith and Elspeth, um, but especially White Sun Zenith, give, gives a control player a lot of sack outlets to jinxed idle tech that's used against control. Um, not having White Sun Zenith 
hurts. All right, and the last of these cards, and I'm just, I don't believe I said this, all of these cards are main deck for me. So, so far we've had one Sun Titan, two Everflowing Chalices, and one White Sun Zenith. Here's another little one-of, is a land, actually. It's Ink Moth Nexus. If you've been paying attention to the recent Tezzeret and the recent MBS news, Ink Moth Nexus is a very, very popular card, um, reaching right now for about 10 to $11.00. And for those of you who don't know, it's a, just a regular land that taps for one colorless mana, and you can pay one colorless mana to bring out, to make Ink Moth Nexus a 1-1 artifact creature token with, well not token, it becomes a 1-1 artifact creature with flying and infect. And that's a really crucial part here. Um, mostly, you've been, we've, uh, mostly we've been seeing this card with, uh, the blue-black Tezzeret decks, or in some little Infect decks, does a little evasion, little creature that you think can get in pretty quickly. I like this card for two major reasons. One, it's an alternate win condition, and that's always important for control. The key, a key part of any deck is being able to win from different angles. Um, you know, an aggro deck really is only going to be able to beat you by bursting down your life. However, my control deck can get you down to zero with life-wise. They can get you up to 10 poison, or I can mill you with a Jace ultimate. And they, you know, they can also equip the Ink Moth Nexus with equipment that they're currently running. So, you know, some people might look at Ink Moth and say, well, it's a 10-turn clock. No, not really. We just made it a 4-turn clock. Mm -hmm. That only costs 4 mana to do that once you have that out there, assuming that you're also technically counting Ink Moth Nexus as a used mana. But if it's a sort of Feast and Famine, the Ink Moth Nexus itself untaps and basically just gives you Vigilance on an infect creature, which is something that is very hard to get, and right now there's only one creature that does it, and it's not even worth playing in standard. Yeah, it's, it's, it is a, a great utility card for control, and it gives the deck even more diversity. Alrighty, so we're going to move on to the sideboard here, and sideboards are always, are basically a dime a dozen for every deck. There's always going to be a different sideboard based on what people are expecting to play. There's two ways to look at a sideboard. You can look at a sideboard as adding to your current, you know, your main deck, or you can look at a sideboard as just specializing for other matchups. I usually look at mine as specializing. So for our 15 cards here, we have one Baneslayer Angel, which is a pretty obvious choice. Uh, it's going to be brought in against sometimes control, depending, but mostly against aggro to, for the life gain, for the first strike, kill a bunch of creatures. It's hard to get rid of. And a lot of people don't expect it for some reason. It's really easy to tech against, and no one ever techs against it. So, um, The next card, and it's one that is seeing some play now and isn't seeing some play for some reason, is Leyline of Sanctity. And there's three copies of that in here. And Leyline of Sanctity is such a crucial card against so many decks. Against Valakit, you can no longer Valakit me. Against Vampires, Colostra, Highborn's done. Gatekeeper of Malakir's done. Against Blue Black, they can no longer hand disrupt you. And one of the key parts for both control matchups, Jace can no longer fate seal you. And Gideon can no longer require that you attack. Because both of those abilities require target <coughs> opponent. And Leyline of Sanctity says you can't be the target of spells or abilities your opponents control. I have won way too many matches because my opponent had to sit there and try and out-aggro me, and Gideon Jura just decided to stand there and take all the damage, and I win. Okay, next we have three Oust, and that's coming from Brian Kibler's tech. Oust is actually a really good card against Valakit, specifically. 
It's also very good against, it can be very good against control depending on the build of control. Against blue-black, it's great because it gets rid of that Grave Titan, leaving you the board. But um, actually, it's one of the cards I've been debating on right now because Valakit, to me, seems like it will be dying out a little bit and not be at quite as popular as it was. So that might be one of those cards that gets switched around, subbed around for those Wall of Tangle cords or for something else. Um, next, we have Sword of Body and Mind. Uh, it's kind of obvious. If you run Sword of Feast and Famine, why not just run the other? It's not in the main deck, though, because it's more of a, I use it against control to get rid of, you know, if you cut 10 cards from a control player's deck, it's really hurt. It's painful, and also it's... It makes, prevents Jace bouncing, too. Uh, yes, that's always important. And also, it gives you a creature, and that, that creature, and always, you know, getting another creature out is always a good thing. So the next card on the list here is Jace Bellerin. And or Baby Jace, as some of you may know him, and Jace Bellerin, you know, he hasn't been seeing a lot of play recently in any control deck. Even Blue Black has decided to stop running a bit him a bit, and I think it's just having him as just an anti Jace killer. How many are you running? I am running two right now. Yeah, I think two is a lot of people may run one, but having back in the day, go back five or six months ago when six Jaces were being run. I think having two Jaces in the sideboard and going into a six Jace deck versus the mirror is incredibly important. And also, as we can note, Jace Bellerin is the only Planeswalker with a three CMC, and we have just talked about a certain Titan who likes to bring back three CMC cards from the graveyard. Yeah. So basically, if you run Jace Bellerin and you have a Sun Titan on the board, you've just locked your opponent out of Jace the Mind Sculptor. Yep. Always important. Next on the list is two Luminarch Ascensions. If, with Calgo being as popular, to, popular as it is, they are very slow to get damage being dealt. Mm -hmm. And if you want, if you remember, it is only damage that you're if you didn't lose life. Meaning, I would not crack a fetchland if you could avoid it. It's great with Gideon too. So, if you can redirect damage to Gideon, your Luminarch Ascension is much quicker. In becoming active. And once the once you can start making four four white angels, which is usually by around turn five, six, it's almost game because you can just produce so many. You can usually produce three or four a turn. And the last card on our sideboard list here is Ratchet Bomb. Uh, it's an all around great card. All control decks are running it. Uh, almost all decks are running it. Yeah. It's the, it's just the catch all. Whatever um, you can't handle, just run Ratchet Bomb. Yeah, it's great. You bring it in against aggro, you bring it in against ramp, you bring it in against Control killer. Uh, usually, it's not a matter of if I bring it in; it's a matter of how many do I bring in. It's a great card, and I want as many as I can on my sideboard. Indeed. Okay, so there's uh, the Calgo list that's being run from me in DC, and I hope that some of you see some of the wisdom that's coming out of this in the fact that we're already stepping ahead and preparing for Calgo and preparing for uh, any other decks. Control's always been the deck that you have to prepare for everything, even if you don't want to. Yeah, and you'll, you'll probably notice, um, you know, a, a couple weeks ago I was advocating Core Firewalker in the side, and I think right now, um, seeing how dominant white is in all decks, whether it be control decks or aggro decks, I think now is the time to kind of slide Core Firewalker back out. If red starts to become dominant again, or makes a heavy splash, you know, it's it's... It's a red killer, but it's more 
pro-white than anything. There's there's more white and blue are just really, really dominant right now. Speaking of, let's I just want to take this moment to maybe have a little bit of discussion as to why the sudden shift from blue-white, from blue-black, which was so dominant in Worlds and all the tournaments after that, and now with MBS, all of a sudden we see blue-black just disappear off the face of the map. It did okay at... um. Indianapolis, you know, put two in the top 16, one in the top eight, but at uh, PT Paris, you know, there were about, there were, I believe, 100 blue-black decks, and there isn't a single one of those in the top eight, whereas we had 70 cargo decks, and already three of those are in the top eight. Mm -hmm. So maybe, you know, Warren will give us a little insight as to why blue-black has just effectively dropped off the map. Well, I, I think there's two reasons. I think blue-black has a difficult time dealing with red, uh, whereas white has answers to that. They have uh, Blue-black control has a very difficult time redirecting damage. Anyone that's played with Gideon will quickly let you know how great that card is against aggressive decks. When blue-black control was, was dominant, the format was very slow. It was Valakut, uh, some Boros was being run around. Um, Boros does not swarm you. They get a creature here or a creature there. They like to equip. Uh, Blue-black had tools to answer that with um, Disfigure and other removal cards. But about four weeks prior to Paris, I was saying, you make the switch to white-blue. Um, the the format has become very aggressive. White had, had a lot more tools in dealing with a very fast, almost turbo-aggro format. Um, but I think where where blue black fails and where white blue shines is effective board sweepers. Black Sun Zenith is is good. It's probably the best sweeper that black has. I, I do like consume the meek a lot, but there's simply no replacement to Day of Judgment, and especially a turn three Day of Judgment if you run Ever Flowing Chalice. Um, being able to hit uh, Black Sun Zenith for one damage on turn three uh, is okay, but even that doesn't stop Goblin Guide. They're still taking damage, even though it's one. Um, so I just don't think they're properly prepared to deal with a turbo aggro aggressive format. You know, it was fine against Balakit and, and slower aggro builds, but when the <clears throat> when the tournament uh, scene picked up its aggression, uh, I really, in my opinion, think. Gideon was the answer to all of that, and I'm not sure how, how Zach feels about it, but I would ultimately say Black's black uh, blue-black control's inability to effectively deal with board position until turn six, when they got a grave tight out, but it was usually a little late by that point in time. Um, I feel really that the biggest... the biggest advantage blue-white has over blue-black is just the diversity and the amount of planeswalkers they have. Uh, if you look at blue-white, you have five planeswalkers versus blue-black's three. I'm not counting double Jace here for a reason. I'm specifically referring to individual planeswalkers. For blue-black, you only have uh, Jace. Jace sculptor. Well, you could potentially run Liliana and Soren. Yeah, it could. You don't. They don't see as much play. Wafu Tapo ran Soren, didn't you? You have a four drop, a five drop, and a six drop. Now, when you switch over to the blue white aspect, you have five planeswalkers that you can run. You have Jace the Mind Sculptor still. Mm -hmm. You have a Johnny Goldmane, 
who saw a lot of play when he first came out. It's still a good Planeswalker. He's not as good as he used to be, but he combos really well with the next one, Elspeth Terrell. Mm-hmm. Uh, with all the token generation, the life gain, you have Gideon Jura, who's effectively just a game st- a game stopper, and then finally you have Venser. And although yep. he's not seeing play right now, I still believe there's a board out there with him, and it may involve some artifacts. Hint, mm-hmm. hint. Um, and he's, I mean, when you put all five of those, if you just look at the diversity of blue-white planeswalkers versus blue-black planeswalkers, Agreed. and how, I mean, blue-white is going, if I don't play Elspeth, Gideon, and Jace, I'm doing something wrong. Mm-hmm. And whereas blue-black's going, all I've got is Jace, really. Yep. So blue-white's just ability to put out planeswalkers is just so much more than any other decks yeah. that... It's really, when you play a Planeswalker, it's basically just saying, I've just added eight life, mm-hmm. and this card is gaining life every turn. Yeah, I would say basically that the faster the format, better white-blue control is. The slower the format, better blue-black control is. At least that's what we saw over the last couple of months. Um, that could be different now with with uh, you know cards like White Sun Zenith or the Stoneforge Mystic Package. Maybe white-blue control was better in the in the longer game, but it seemed that blue-black control shined in a slower format. Um, but, you know, in, in summary, I think it's effective board sweeping, and Zach feels it's ineffective planeswalkers, and I think both sides are right, really, to be honest with you. So to wrap up this episode, we're going to do, we'll do a quick recap of what we went over. Uh, you know, be ready for your local metagame. Know what you're going to be up against. Uh, it's one of the key fundamentals of Magic, and it's one of your biggest advantages to winning your games. Observation is is, the, is such a big part of metagaming, uh, just observing what's out there. Be ready for Cargo. It's going to be played heavily at the next big event that you're going to. Uh, we gave you a little insight as to how that deck works and some little modifications of our own. If you feel like playing Cargo, you know, take it take it as it is. You, you or send it, an email. Um, you can email us at into the royal podcast at gmail.com. Um, you can send us an email and we can give you some insight into how the decks run and some of its weak points and some of its strong points. And, and that's for any deck, really. If you feel you have a rogue build or you're trying to figure out a way to make a build better, send it to us. We'll give you our advice. We'll give you how we feel on something and you know, you can take it for what it is. Of course, we never say you should do this just because we say so. Right. Absolutely. And the last thing of course is if you're planning on playing control, we recommend blue, white over blue, black, blue, black right now. just isn't fast enough to compete with goblins and boros and even call go itself. Yeah, absolutely. And next week's episode will be on deck building for your metagame, which will be very interesting. And, We hope that you enjoyed this particular episode and that you'll join us again next week. And signing out, I'm Warren. And I'm Zach. And And this is Into the Royal. This has been an Into the Royal production. If you would like to contact us, you may email us at intotheroyalpodcast at gmail.com. You may also visit our website, intotheroyal.wordpress.com. Feel free to leave a comment at any time. Thank you again, and have a nice day.